All right, as is custom here at Calvary Chapel, those of you that are able, would you guys please stand for the reading of God's Word? And we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 11, so not too terribly long. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. We love you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, we we praise you that we get to study your word this morning. Um, We get to learn about this story of healing. And we just ask that you would open our, our hearts and our minds and just give us insight and wisdom as we study. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so ever since, well, my wife and I have been coming to Calvary Chapel about 12-ish years, somewhere around there. There's a lot of new faces. Um, I know a, a lot of you, but most of you uh, that are new here, I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet. Like Roger said, normally I teach the adult Sunday school class um, in the back there. So I'll give you a brief background on, on who I am and, well, why I'm up here today. Uh, I was actually raised an atheist. Not raised as in from my parents an atheist, but uh, the furthest thing from a Christian household that you can ever get. And I was one of those where I grew up uh, arguing against Christians, completely destroying their faith. I would give the antithesis of every Christian argument. I hated Christianity, I hated the Bible, and I hated Christians even worse. Does it sound familiar? Does anyone know somebody like me? Good. So it came to a culmination. I'll I'll save the the long story. But I was uh, in college at UCLA, and I was trying to disprove the Bible. Now, of course, I'm biased. I think UCLA is one of the finest libraries on the Western coast. So I was there for about two years, um, spending time trying to disprove scripture. And all I can do at that time was prove the things that can be proven in the Bible. You know, historical dates, archeological facts, uh, things like that, scientific uh, arguments presented in the Bible. So needless to say, this greatly disturbed my atheistic faith. So it was one day I was sitting in class, uh, a science class down at UCLA, and you know, the, the science teacher ended up saying, Basically, in the beginning, nothing exploded and produced everything. Wait, what? Yes, Mr. Kirk. Did you just say nothing exploded, produced everything? Yes. Seriously? Nothing exploded, produced everything. See, that that was an unreasonable argument to me. And the reason why I bring this up is I want to make sure we understand the context of this beggar. 
and what he was feeling and how he was probably in the same mindset that most of us either have been in our lives or know people that are in our lives, or I know that I certainly was in my past. So we see in the first part, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the, uh, at the hour of prayer, which was the ninth hour. Why is it important to recognize that they went up to the temple at that particular hour? Have you guys ever read Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts? Do you notice how he's extremely detail-oriented? He's like that guy, right? He wants to include every single little detail. He's kind of a mixture between an, an engineer, well, and he was a physician. Um, too bad Dr. Strobach is gone, so I can't pick on him on this one. But extremely detail-oriented. Now, when I study scripture, I always ask those questions. Why are these certain things included? Do you guys ever ask that? Right? Because there's got to be a reason. See, I believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God and the inerrancy of Scripture. That means that I believe that the Bible is exactly as it should be from God. So if it's in there that they went up at the hour of prayer, I think that's a very important thing. The timing is indeed extremely important, as Peter and John weren't going to the temple at the hour of sacrifice, which is before the hour of prayer. And that followed the afternoon sacrifice. They realized that the sacrificial system was already fulfilled in the perfect sacrifice that Jesus had offered on the cross. Now, uh, I know we get into Greek a little bit here at Calvary Chapel, and I want to point out one fact on this. So when it says that they were going up, it's an imperfect tense of the verb, and it suggests that it was their custom to go up there frequently. Well, why is that important? So with them still going to pray on a daily basis was a very important thing for the apostles to keep doing. They had been with Christ. They had witnessed the risen Christ. And they counted prayer and time of prayer as an extremely important daily activity. And how many times do we, you know, what we call throw up those popcorn prayers? Um, maybe thanking God for our food and that might be about it, or praying a little bit before bedtime. Guys, I'm, I'm as guilty as, as all, everybody on this one. And it's an important and sobering fact that the apostles still made time when they were in Jerusalem to go up and to make it a matter of importance for their daily prayer. Now we read about this beggar, whom I can relate to quite a bit, obviously not uh, for the disability, but we'll get into what I think his attitude was towards God. And it says here that he was a certain lame man, and he was carried every single day, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple. Okay, so let's kind of get a little bit of context for this fella. He was born completely paralyzed. So what does that mean in the Jewish culture? Was there any disability insurance back then? No. What was he able to do to earn an income? You're looking at it. It's the only option available to him. That was it. And praise God, he had some buddies that loved him enough to literally carry him every day and set him at that, that gate, the, which is called the beautiful gate. So again, those of you that have been in my adult Sunday school class, I won't, I won't bore you with details. Um, my, my bride always makes sure that I you know, keep it 
surfacey level rather than get too deep. But there was a Jewish historian, a guy by the name of Josephus. He was a first century historian. Now, this guy by the name of Josephus wrote a, a great book called The Antiquities of the Jews around the first century, around the time that Christ had been crucified and resurrected. Josephus never got saved, at least to our knowledge. He never became a Christian. However, what's important about Josephus? Josephus is one of many uh, resources not found in Scripture that mention the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, as far as the resurrection goes, to be fair, he mentions the empty tomb. Now, that's where he and the rest of us differ on how that tomb became empty. But the important fact is, here is a guy, one of many historians, that records the life of Christ at that time. And he also recorded the beautiful gate. He described it like this. He said it was made of fine Corinthian brass, 75 feet high, with huge double doors, so beautiful that it, quote, greatly excelled those that were only covered over with silver and gold. Can you guys imagine a 75-foot-tall brass double gate? What that would have looked like. It was absolutely immense. Now, why was the lame man placed there? Well, he was placed at that gate for maximum effect, and spotting Peter and John about to go in, he began asking to receive alms. He was expecting mercy, somehow uh, in the form of money, not even realizing that what he was about to receive was greater than mercy, which is the healing and, of course, salvation later on. Now, this was one of the most common entrances into the temple. Most people absolutely entered through this gate. Again, why does Luke note this? Well, think about this. How many times have we read about Christ preaching into the temple, healing in the temple, going in for prayer? Quite a few, right? So again, this is conjecture. Um, this isn't included in scripture, definitely. But we can ascertain that this man laid at this gate, whom Jesus walked past dozens of times, and Christ never healed him. Why? Doesn't that seem odd? That Christ probably walked past this man dozens of times and never healed him. I'm certain it's quite possible that he did not heal him at that time, and I'm assuming it was not simply an awkward moment of trying to avoid a beggar, kind of like we do on the side of the freeway. Now, all joking aside, <laughs> I want you guys to put yourself <laughs> in the place of that beggar, okay? <laughs> now, what do I mean by placing us in the place of that beggar? So you have a real need, a very serious need. You don't have an ability to make an income. You don't have an ability to be mobile. All you can do is depend on your buddies to lay you at that gate every day so that you can beg. Now. That has got to be just one of the most unbelievably uh, humbling and kind of downtrodden existences that I can think of. You know, as dads and, and, and fathers, we enjoy, we enjoy working. We enjoy being able to work in the garden or, um, you know, help our kids put together a bike or whatever. And to have this fella not have any of those joys, I, I, can't, even, I can't even imagine. And this seems... Okay, he's laying here at this gate, and this seems to go way beyond any type of a want. Now, here's this guy. He's born completely lame, crippled, paralyzed from birth. And 
He's laid at the temple every day since then. Again, conjecture, but what do you guys think that his attitude towards God would have been like? Do you think that he would have been favorable, thinking God was merciful and loving? Let's be real. I don't believe he did. I believe this guy had a very angry heart towards God. Because how many times do you think he was sitting there praying for God to heal him? And he didn't. And he never did. Now, don't you think this guy may have heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Right? Don't you think he maybe knew when Jesus of Nazareth walked into the temple who he was? And he heard about Jesus of Nazareth healing the same type of people as he was. And he's watching this Jesus of Nazareth walk right past him. A, not only does he not heal him, B, because Jesus didn't have any money either, he didn't give him any money. What do you think the attitude was like of this man? Yet from what we read of this guy, he wasn't expecting healing. He was just expecting some money. So is the travesty that Jesus didn't heal him right when he saw him? How would we today respond to this type of situation? So does anyone know of what's called the progressive Christianity movement or word of faith movement? Okay. It's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Here's why. That's why I bring up how would we today, not we as in Calvary Chapel, but we as in a culture today, respond to this type of situation. Here's how it goes, guys, uh, for the progressive Christianity or the word of faith movement. The reason why that beggar wasn't healed is because his faith wasn't great enough to heal him. That's their reasoning. Does anyone see the danger in that? That's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Because who are such proponents of this that we need to watch out for? Two come to mind, Kenneth Copeland, for one, and his uh, protege, Todd White. Do you know, like I said, what their response to the beggar would be? You just need to have more faith. That it's your problem that you're not getting healed. You don't have enough faith to be healed. Do we read any of that here in these scriptures? Is it up to anything that this guy has done so far that has I, uh, A, either enabled Christ to heal him or, the, or Christ through the apostles to heal him? No. Some are told that their requests are not being granted simply because they don't have enough faith. I'm sorry, but I didn't realize that the sovereign will of the creator of the entire universe is seemingly dependent on my level of faith. Have I had it wrong all these years since I got saved all those years back in college? Is it, is it the opposite way? Is it God saying, oh, Sean, you need to have enough faith so I can work through you? That doesn't work. That's not the God of the Bible, and that's certainly not the God that decided to save me. That is an impotent, small, little, little God. And it's what's being preached in our culture, and it seems to be very popular and growing in speed. See, this situation is perfect because it demonstrates that his healing had absolutely nothing to do with his faith or his amount of it. And it's a perfect demonstration of God's sovereignty and perfect will and timing. See, we who may be hurting for one reason or another, depending on what it is, a loved one who is ill, a precarious job situation, economics. Some of you know I'm a financial advisor. Have you guys seen the market lately? Super fun, okay? Whatever our dire and emergent situation that we are bringing before the Lord, do we not cry out, Lord God, help me do something? How many times did this beggar cry out, I just want to get up and walk. I would love to meet a gal and get married and hug her on my feet. Don't you think this man longed for those things? And he cried out to God daily, daily, 
yet silence. No answer from God. No change in circumstances. Is the problem with our faith or with his faith? Or is it possibly, as it was with this man, that God is sovereign? Has Christ possibly, like I mentioned, walked past this man dozens of times and no healing? Then, through his servants, Peter and John, he, through the Spirit's call and power, finally instructs them to heal this man. We get to our next point. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting? Money. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Now, I want us to notice four particular things about this miracle. Number one, it was unexpected, right? Completely unexpected. This man did not receive what he was expecting. He was expecting a couple of bucks, but what he got (laughs) was far more than that. Number two, it was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't done to the glory of Peter and John. Number three, it was instantaneous. Immediately, this man received strength and got up, and it was complete. See, Peter commands the the cripple, look at us. Now, with this lame man expecting to receive money from them, yet he was soon to find out what was more valuable than money is what they were going to give him. So, as I mentioned before, like all of God's works, this miracle is based on God's sovereign will. I've made mention of Christ possibly passing by this beggar numerous times and not healing him. Also, think about it. There were hundreds of other beggars in Jerusalem at the same time. Many of them undoubtedly crippled as well. Yet it was this man at this time through Peter and John that God sovereignly chose to receive healing. Of course, you guys got to be answering or asking the question the same one I am. Why? Why this man, why this time, and why through Peter and John? I don't know. (laughs) Sorry, guys, I don't know. That answer isn't given in Scripture. But you know what answers are given in Scripture? That God is absolutely sovereign, that God is absolutely merciful, and that God is absolutely holy. So I do know that God's decision to save and heal this man at this time was absolutely perfect. I don't understand the whys. Of course, I would love to, but it is what it is. And the next part. It was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever, again, going back to some of the awful things that we see uh, on TV being propagated, some of the the so-called healers on TV, have you guys seen them healing and then doing what? Taking credit, taking glory for it, right? They do it out of their own authority, I think one of the greatest examples of this, since we're in the book of Acts, do you guys remember the, so- the story, the uh, seven sons of Sceva, right? So kind of a little side tangent on that. So those of you that may or may not have read it, it's a really cool story. Basically, um, the disciples go into like a pub. Let's just call it what it pretty much was back then. And they were in there, and there was another guy in there trying to impress a girl, and there was a guy that was possessed by demons, you know, maybe sitting on a stool or something. And the guy trying to impress the girls ends up telling the, the demon-possessed man, he says, hey, 
you need to come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, here's the scary part. The demon, through that guy, straight looks at this man, says, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but you, who are you? And they proceed to beat the tar out of that guy, and he runs out of the pub screaming and pretty much half naked. So the important part on this miracle, it was done in the name of Christ. Now, when we see that in Scripture, in the name of, it means by the authority of or through the grace of, right? So Peter and John were acting as direct apostles. That's what the word means, of Christ. Now, Peter commands the cripple, look at us. Now, with this, the lame man is expecting to receive money from him. It's all he wanted. So what about this beggar? Do you guys suppose he had any reason to believe in Jesus Christ? Let's recap this. Born lame and crippled, set at the the base of the beautiful gate almost every day to beg from them. He's begging God to heal him, and he hasn't yet. He's heard of Jesus of Nazareth healing people just like him. He's seen, probably, Jesus of Nazareth walk right past him without healing. Now he's heard of Jesus of Nazareth being executed for blasphemy. Did this man have faith in Christ? Do you guys think yes or no? Yeah, I I agree with you. I don't think he did either. I absolutely don't. So for him to hear Peter use the name of Christ at that first sentence, I imagine was very quite perplexing for him. How would that man have felt to hear Peter use Jesus' name? Let's put it back on us. How do we have felt? Again, let's be honest. We don't have to super Christianize this or, or whatever. We can be real. How would we have felt if all of a sudden, before the healing occurs, all that had happened to us, and someone says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And you're like, uh, okay, y- you mean the God whom I've been praying to my whole life? The Jesus who's healed beggars, but not me. The Jesus who walked past me and did absolutely nothing for me, and the Jesus that was crucified for blasphemy, that guy? Sure. This was probably this guy's attitude. Just like I was all those years ago, how many of us have had that same attitude or have loved ones with that same attitude? Trust me, we do, and we know those whom we love that have that exact same attitude. He has already healed many people just like him, and now he's executed. Now that's the amazing part. Why? Why is it amazing? Because it wasn't contingent on his faith at all. His level of faith did not determine what God had done or lack thereof. How is that hopeful? Are, we, are any of us praying for any loved ones to get saved? Yes. Guess what? As uh, Roger mentioned, you know, I'm an apologist, which means I um, have studied to give a defense for Christianity, why it's true, all the science, all the philosophy, all that stuff. And you know what? If I totally bumble on the gospel presentation and say all the wrong things, it's not up to me or how well or poorly I presented the gospel. I don't have that type of authority. Praise God, I don't have that type of authority to mess it up. This man didn't have any faith in Christ and the Lord didn't heal or save him because of his great faith or his great character. The Lord and saved, saved him and healed him because he's merciful and his grace is so beyond comprehension. This is the definition of grace. We've heard the, the textbook definition that grace is unmerited, unwarranted favor, but now we're seeing it in action. This guy had the same attitude that we either have had in our lives or we know loved ones that have in their lives. And God still healed and saved him regardless of it. 
That is grace. It doesn't depend on us, but upon the perfect and holy will of God. So again, going back to those people whom you love, the ones that if they were to die today, you know certainly you will never see them again. Those people, no matter how bad you are at sharing the gospel, how much you bumble over your words and stutter, how bad their attitude is, how much you think, how can this person, this one, ever come to faith? One of my best friends in high school prayed that prayer for me, and he was concerned about me ever coming to faith. My wife knows him. Kagan is the most uneloquent man with words you will ever meet, but he loves, and he loved me, and he kept praying for me. But you know what? It wasn't because of Kagan's eloquent words that saved me. Or you just get clammy thinking about it. Does anyone just start to hyperventilate and have an almost panic attack thinking about sharing the gospel to either a stranger or that contentious loved one whom you're praying for or about? Yeah. God's gracious and sovereign. Like I said, I was that person. I was the one that openly proclaimed my hatred for God. I openly proclaimed even if he did exist, I hated him still. How can someone like me ever come to faith? Because it wasn't up to me and it, or those who love me and praying for me. It was God, just like this man that regenerated my heart. And if God can reach into the very pit of filth and pull out the nastiest and slimiest thing he can find and save me, guess what? There's hope for those whom you are praying for as well. Praise God. Now we need to read the next part. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Again, I, I like to put myself in the position of that beggar. How do you think that beggar was feeling at this time? I mean, th this has got to be a whirlwind, an absolute whirlwind. I mean, here was this guy that was hearing Peter proclaim this, and he's probably thinking, yeah, right. And now all of a sudden, he's up on his feet. Well, his confusion certainly didn't last long. Now, this was a genuine gift of healing rather than the charlatans of today and their so-called healings. How do I know? Well, this one, this resulted in an absolute and immediate cure. It wasn't gradual. The Lord Jesus' healings were instantaneous. There was no gradual process. Have you ever seen those fakes? Those that tell people they'll be healed, but it's going to come in, quote, stages over time? Yes, I have too. There was never a gradual process involved with the Lord. That beggar did not even need to be taught to walk. Think about that. This man was born lame and crippled from birth, and he didn't even have to be taught how to walk. There was no physical therapy appointments for this guy. It was immediate come up and walk. No trying to learn balance and coordination, just instantaneous healing, and he got up and he walked. Now, I love his response. I would like to think it would be mine as well. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Can you imagine? This was truly a miracle to behold. Peter did not have to manhandle this guy to get him up. It's not like that they were, you know, trying to lift him up and drag him into the temple. He literally felt the strength surge through his feet and his ankles. And he leapt up and he began to walk. Now, Peter and John, they weren't supporting him. And he walked into the temple with them, walking and leaping and, and praising God. So the four characteristics of this miracle give us kind of a checklist to screen all these alleged miraculous healings. So a healing that fits the true biblical pattern, it's going to stem from God's sovereign choice. 
it will be done to glorify Christ. Now, what do I mean by it will be done to glorify Christ? Now, I, I've named two before, um, Kenneth Copeland and his protege, Todd White. Um, have you guys seen the, the deal where Todd White will sit someone on a chair on the street, and he'll show them how one foot or one leg is shorter than the other? Duh, we all are. And then he seemingly pulls on this leg, and it grows miraculously. And then what does he do at the end of it? All he says is, Jesus loves you, bro, and then, and then walks away. And that's it, okay? I won't get into the effects of how he, he's doing that. But in what way does that glorify Christ? We're going to get into how this healing, particularly with Peter and John, had glorified Christ. Also, the healings will be instantaneous, and they will be complete. All the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So this gives us three results of the miraculous healing of the beggar. The first, it's the obvious one, joy to the beggar himself, which he expressed by praising God. Now picture this, okay, what was happening in the temple at the time. It's a cold, purely ritualistic evening sacrifice. That's what was happening in the temple. Have you guys ever been to any type of religious service where the spirit's not there? I mean, dead. They're just doing it because A, they've always done it this way, or it's expected. That's what was happening right now. Completely cold. Nothing as far as joy, nothing honoring to God in this. Everyone solemn, concentrating on this thing that everyone does because merely it's always been that way. Here they are, I don't know, maybe chanting something. I don't know what's going on at this time, but I know it's not a joyful celebration. It's probably quiet, hushed, maybe dim lighting because it's the evening sacrifice or afternoon sacrifice rather. And then all of a sudden, the doors burst open and you have this seemingly crazy guy because I'm sure he's not dressed in great clothes. He's been laying around for his entire life. Now you guys are here in this solemn prayer meeting and some crazy guy comes through those doors. Praise God, hallelujah, I've been healed. And he's dancing and leaping and jumping everywhere. What do you think the Jews are gonna do at that point? Do you guys remember these Jews? These weren't spirit-filled folks, okay? So what do you think their response is gonna be? They're turning around, what on earth is happening? So what's the other result? So like we said, we have joy to that beggar himself. Now, the important part, we have praise and worship toward God. So merely participating in a religious service doesn't in itself guarantee true worship. No more than sticking spam on rice is going to make it sushi, right? <laughs> what do I mean by this? The legit, most genuine worship in that temple the entire day was that beggar praising God. These cold, calloused men that only did it for elitist sake, weren't praising God. Why were they doing it? Because it's the way it's always been. It's what their fathers did before them and their father's fathers, and you can keep tracing it back. Now we have this man, this beggar, praising God. The third part, the miracle was a testimony to the people. The beggar's emotional outburst of praise, I'm certain caused some shock and awe. Everyone at the temple that day saw him praising God. 
he became a very, very public testimony. Those people recognized, quote, him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. No one had denied that a miracle had taken place. They all knew that a miracle had taken place. They had seen this man at the gate for years, and now he is up leaping and dancing and vocally praising God. Even the Jewish leaders said, a couple of verses later in Acts chapter 4, verses, verse 16, they said this, quote, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Wow! These guys admitted that the miracle was real. They admitted that it was noteworthy. And what's the other problem? They were angry at it because it took the authority <coughs> excuse me, and the power away from them. See, God designs miracles to point people to divine truth. This healing certainly did that. The interesting part is the crowd. Now, what do I, why do I say that? Who was there? Well, all the Jews, learned Jews, Jews that had studied scriptures. If they had merely remembered their own scriptures, specifically in Isaiah, they would have known this would have marked the beginning of Messianic times in Isaiah 35, 6. Then the lame will leap like a deer. This was happening right before their eyes. It's amazing when we see those who are so calloused to the word of God just because it's what they've always done. Just like Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, God provided the introduction and the crowd was absolutely amazed at the healing of the lame man. They gathered at the portico of Solomon, a porch, which was the same porch where Jesus gave the discourse of the good shepherd in John 10, 23. It's the same place. And this man who had been healed stood with the apostles Clinging to Peter and John, he was the literal living proof of the God of miracles and the one that had taken place. So I know we don't have time for me to um, do an expository on Peter's sermon, which is pretty epic, but I am going to read it because the point of this healing wasn't healing in itself, right? Why did the Spirit through Peter and John heal this man? It's for what was coming up. It's now time for Peter to preach Christ, not just perform a miracle and leave. In all things, Christ must be preached. Let me start here. Let's see where we're at. In verse 12. Now when, uh, you know, everyone's amazed at seeing this man. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health, in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things by which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The whole point of this healing was one thing, to preach the gospel. 
It wasn't in and of itself. It pointed to Christ. It preached the gospel. And more importantly, it gives us that hope of those that we are praying for and we're not seeing the results, just as this man. God is still sovereign, folks. It's not done. He's still sovereign. I was, what, 20 or 21 before God decided to save me. He's still sovereign for those that we're praying for, that those whom our hearts are breaking for. So let's close in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we love you and we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for your testimony. God, it is absolutely amazing that, that we can come before you and that, and that we have the opportunity to proclaim your gospel. God, we ask for those that we are praying for that hurt our hearts, that you would continue to work on theirs. God, please save those whom we love that aren't yours yet. We ask all this thing in Christ's name. Amen.